Jordan, we are live. Hello, people of the internet. My name is Jordan with a silent PH in the middle. Um, and I am joined today on the Saturday morning D&D show by my wonderful co-host, Sir Lucian. Say hello, hello sir. Hello, everybody. And we have a very special guest with us, Mr. Matt Colville. Uh, not that like, special. Not, not special. special. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Matt. This is awesome. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Um, I guess I'll just start off with, like, how are you? What's going on? I'm tired. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Woke you up I'm, way too early uh, for a Saturday morning D&D show? Or? Well, I was up. I went and saw Black Panther for the second time last night. Nice. So we were out late. And then I've got a sick cat that I'm, we're trying to figure out what's mm. wrong with. Oh, goodness. So I, I'm happy to have the vet that I have as a, like a 24-hour vet. So yeah. very late at night after going to the movies, I had to go drive to my vet, pick the cat up, and we try to find out if we can see what's wrong with my cat beast. Uh, but yeah, mm. otherwise, the Kickstarter is a lot of work trying to find time right. to get uh, writing done while dealing with spinning all the plates. Um, but happily, I'm, I have a whole bunch of really good people helping me out. And so there's not... It's not as overwhelming as it otherwise would be. I don't know how I would have done this. I, I thought I was. I thought I could do a Kickstarter basically by myself. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that proved not possible. Right. No way it happened. I'm very lucky that a friend of mine, who's um, the QA lead at uh, Turtle Rock Studios, just took it upon himself to kind of run run this. Like months ago, like October, he really? realized if if someone else doesn't take this over, Matt's never going to even get started. And so he just started doing all the research and making schedules and lists and saying like you know. All right, you say you want to get minis done. By the way, he's super skeptical of that because he's a you know he's a <laughs> QA guy. He's like, this is never going to work. Uh, let's stick to our core competencies. And I was like, but minis are cool, and they're the thing that I was really exciting me yeah. about the Kickstarter. All the other stuff in the Kickstarter I've done before, but minis are neat. And so he's the one that went and found the vendor and did all the research. And mm -hmm. I mean, the first thing he did, by the way, he, it's great having somebody like this in your corner. By the way, I recommend it. Is um, he said, tell him, give me something to do, and I was like, okay, I want you to go and I. I I think I made a list of like 10 different Kickstarters in this category, some in the fifth edition category, some just tabletop role playing. And I just said, I want a bunch of data about these. I want to know like how much money they raised and how many, how many, I, actually how much money they raised wasn't the thing we were that interested in. We were way more interested in how many pledge levels were there? How yeah. many backers were there at every pledge level? Could we sort of reverse engineer which pledge levels worked and which ones didn't work? Right. Because I think anybody that's been to Kickstarter, you know, I've backed, a little over 20 projects you see stuff there where it's like there's 20 different pledge levels yeah what, what is going on how, how i just want the thing i am always that person that's like i'm very happy to give you money i very much want to support the creators but make it easy for me to find the thing that is the product i, I love cobalt press um, I love Cobalt Press, but they have like hired a designer to make their pledge levels. And I'm yeah, like, if well, you have to hire a specific designer for your pledge levels, maybe it's a little too confusing, but they do very successful yeah. Kickstarters. So, <laughs> yeah, which is, which, so I mean, people, I, I think that, um, I think that the success of the Kickstarter category, the board game RPG tabletop category on Kickstarter is a result of them building inadvertently. I don't think Kickstarter, if you go to the Kickstarter front page, it mm -hmm. doesn't matter what the most successful Kickstarter in that moment is. If it's a tabletop Kickstarter, it's not going to be featured on the front page. Probably. Kickstarter, yeah. is all, Kickstarter is all, they're obviously run by people who have a very specific idea of what Kickstarter should be used for. Right. And it's stuff like I'm, you know, it's it's often really esoteric stuff. But uh, there is there is a definite community of tabletop gamers, mostly, I think, board gamers, but not exclusively on Kickstarter. And they like all those pledge mm -hmm. levels. Right. Me trying to make it simple for, you know, my community. 
uh, is one thing, but I, it's, it seems self-evident to me that the people who are re really like backing Kickstarters and do it several times a year, when they see lots of pledge levels, they go, ooh, right? It's something for them to kind of research, mm -hmm. look at, and, and pick between, whereas I was very much like, let's make it as simple as possible, except no more than 10 pledge levels. And in fact, I think that kind of screwed us a little bit because there were definitely, it's, it's, if you decide, let's only have 10 pledge levels in your Kickstarter, depending on what your Kickstarter is for, and we've got a stream and mm. minis and a book, right? Which is very weird. Combine <laughs> that with only 10 pledge levels. And now there are a lot of people saying, but I want this and this, and there isn't a pledge level for that. Like, yeah. uh, that's, this is why people have like 20 pledge levels. Like a pledge level for multiple books, maybe the people that wanted three books instead of well, one. Well, yeah, or... I think that is um, that's something that the pledge manager is designed to handle. And there's several okay. different pledge manager companies and we've talked to all of them uh, and uh, so we're going to be launching a pledge manager at some point in the future. And that allows people to treat it a little bit more like a web store. Man. But there were a lot of really common requests that people wanted this plus that. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. And sometimes I couldn't remember why, why don't we have a pledge level like that? You know, we had several meetings. Mm -hmm. I'm like, these are good requests. Why aren't we doing this? I don't remember. And my <laughs> friends were like, because you said we should only have 10 pledge levels. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and your friends are, uh, because you're right, you have a big crew helping you out. It's like Lars and Anna, right? So definitely well, give got, a shout out to those I've guys. Got, yeah, no, I've got my, my friend Lars, who's kind of acting as the producer of all the swag, right? Mm -hmm. He's He's the one handling everything, like uh, the, the stickers and the shirts and the minis. Uh, I handle book production. I'm the one that has, I have the contact with the printer. And uh, then Anna handles like all the logistics of, of the live production of the Kickstarter. So she's the one answering a lot of the emails and doing, doing all the research basically that Lars doesn't do, handling everything that's not, that's not a physical product. And then I've got my friend Jerry, who's our live producer, and he's our my, also the IT guy at Turtle Rock Studios. And he's the one looking for space right now. So that was nice. part of the Kickstarter was let's go raise money to uh, and we you know we didn't know we didn't know when we launched the Kickstarter if we would get to that goal or how much money we would have. And I remember thinking, well, if it's twenty five hundred bucks a month for rent and it's three years, that would be ninety grand. Would be, holy crap! Would would Kickstarter with the people with the community fund ninety grand? Probably not. So yeah. I had numbers in my head about like, well, if we only got this much from Kickstarter, then I personally would only be on the hook for this much money if we sign a three-year lease. And I could probably do that without having to mortgage my house, right? So that's where <laughs> we were, right? But uh, very quickly, it was obvious that we had a completely different set of problems <laughs> than yeah. the ones we thought we were gonna have. <laughs> and so Jerry's the one who's like, next week, we're gonna be looking at spaces. He's the one going and talking to the real estate broker and you know, uh, so there's a ton of spaces near where we all, we all kind of live and work. And so that's that's next week. And also Jerry's the guy who's making all the all the tech that runs the all the cameras and lights and stuff like that. So yeah, if it wasn't for if it wasn't for them, this never would have happened. So it'll be like a critical role almost, like professional. Oh yeah. yeah, I mean, <laughs> except for the fact that you're going to be watching a bunch of nerdy ass game developers instead of a bunch <laughs> of nerdy -ass voice actors, and those guys are professionally charming people. So the difference, true. the difference between their their live stream and our live stream is going to be drastic. Those are things you can't fix with technology. <laughs> uh, but yeah, as far as the tech goes, they use um, they use black magic cameras, which I've seen and checked out. But um, black magic cameras are I, I don't know. They're they are they are professional gear, but they're I, to my eye, they're almost sort of like prosumer gear rather than professional gear. But they also use like a three quarter or one half inch lens for all hmm. their cameras, which means basically it's a form factor where you can't just go buy 
standard lenses and stick them right. on. You have to buy their lenses and stick them on. So I'm not sure what the advantage is there, but it's the camera they use. So we will definitely look at it. And we'll probably be getting more of these things. <laughs> the Sennheiser MK416, which is sort of the workhorse of the business. It's the camera, it's the it's the microphone that uh, a lot of YouTubers, I like MKBHD uses it. The guys at Linus Tech Tips use it. Mm -hmm. I've had one now for a year and we'll probably have yeah, a bunch of those. We've, um, we've, it's, it's, it's funny thing is that my Heil PR40, if you're watching this and you're interested in audio gear, my <laughs> Heil PR40 to my ear sounds way better than this much more expensive microphone. But that's because I don't know how to make, I don't, I don't know. I'm one of the things mm -hmm. I like about doing all this stuff is learning things. But the flip side of that is I'm ignorant. And so I have not yet figured out how to get the best out of this microphone. It's so sensitive, really, that I should be in a soundproof room um, or sound treated, a sound treated room. And I'm not. I'm in my office. Uh, so, but that's something else we can fix now because we have money. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. And we, one of the great things is that we can sort of learn from critical roles um, the the lessons that they learned. Like they started off with this microphone hanging over each uh, player, mm -hmm. just on from a, from a, the the truss that they built, the wooden truss that they built. And then they switched for about 90 seconds. They switched to lav mics, which we tried. And the lav mic was a very successful. Um, uh, experiment, but a we didn't have wireless lav mics, although we could now if we wanted to. Yeah. We didn't have wireless lav mics, so all the players were all tethered, right? And that they didn't complain about that. They're my friends, but I I complain about it for them, right? I'm like this sucks. They shouldn't have to be you know physically tied to where they're sitting. But then also you have to put a lav mic somewhere. Right? Yep. It has to go somewhere. Yeah. And then when you turn to talk to another player, all of a sudden you get this uh, kind of a singing in the rain, silent movie recording sound mm -hmm. thing where it doesn't doesn't make sense anymore. So uh, then they went to microphones on the table. There's one episode where you can see they have mics just sitting on the table, but then every time they roll dice or every time they put a book down, yeah. you hear this huge thump. So they've now gone back to the Sennheisers, but I think now they're almost on booms. They're like pointing yeah. at the players as opposed to hanging. Kind of like the shotgun mic stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exactly Very it. Yeah. So, yeah. How many yeah, of those so do you need for streaming though? Like two, you need one three? One for each player. One for each player, really? Okay. You need one for each player you need because they are, they are, um, these mics are specifically designed to like, you point them at something. They're almost like parabolic mics. They're not, but they're almost like you, you point them at something and they pick that up and they don't, right. they're with, with like, they pick up things directly behind it. Um, so you want to soundproof if this is if this is your person talking, you want to sound definitely soundproof this, which is one of the reasons people tend to put the mic up here, right? So that this person's voice goes like this, and, but it's 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 very little of the slapback, what they call the, of the echo, is bouncing off the roof, for instance, and coming back to the uh, back to the mic. But yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. Getting the good. That's why we have a. My friend Brian is a professional audio guy, and he's going to be running the. They have somebody on Critical Role. They have somebody alive mixing the show, so that if a, suddenly Travis starts laughing really loudly, he pulls Travis down. Yeah. So it doesn't blow everybody's ears out, and that is an art, right? It's an art that takes a while to learn the players and their behavior, and we're going to have somebody doing that. So. Cool. Yeah, and I noticed we've we've learned a lot about um, the books, the, you know, and you're putting out a lot of content about what's going to be in the book because you're. I love the thing you keep saying about well, I want to set expectations. I want you yeah. to know exactly well, becomes, what you're going to get. Because more important, the more people pledge, right? When there was only yeah. back, I think I mentioned this uh, earlier on, uh, earlier on the internet, like uh, back when I thought we would get, you know, maybe three thousand people backing, and I would I presumed at that point they would all have been members of the YouTube community. I was less worried about that because those people all kind of know my design and my philosophy and that's what they're going to get. But now it's self-evident that a whole bunch of people are pledging. Like once you hit a million dollars on Kickstarter, you become what's called a must back, which means that people will start backing it just because 
they are, they don't want to miss out. What yeah. is this thing? What is this thing? Yeah. And I want to make those people happy too, right? I want to make everybody mm -hmm. who buys the book feel like they got something cool. And that means setting expectations and making sure because you, you start noticing, go to any of the comments or go to the subreddit and people have sort of turned, not everybody, probably a minority of people have sort of turned this book into kind of like a, they project all of the things that they wish fifth edition did onto this book. And it's like, but that's not what it is, man. It's, it's just a bunch of charts and a couple of cool special abilities you get if you found a, a stronghold and attract some followers. Yeah. How much of the book is done right now? Because you're working on it actively, say, but I would say sixty to seventy percent of the rules are done. For okay. instance, all of all of the all of the um, I'll do a video update about this in the next two weeks before the Kickstarter is over, showing off how some of the stuff works behind the scenes. But all of the follower charts are all done. And that was a lot of work in Excel trying to figure out because each different class has a different percentage chance of attracting each category of followers. So some classes attract military units more readily than others, mm -hmm. right? Like paladins and fighters tend to get military units more than warlocks do. Mm -hmm. And this betrays some biases on my part more i would say more cultural assumptions right like what's the difference between a warlock and a cleric one of them mm -hmm. serves a god and the other one dabbles in uh powers that man was not meant to know and there's a semiotic meaning to those things right that a, in a culture a cleric would be more popular with the common people than a warlock a warlock would freak people out right whereas mm -hmm. a cleric is more like i you know i, I serve the community and these things, these assumptions impact what kinds of followers you can attract. But every time I say that, and this is the nature of the beast, uh, this, is not a, this is not a bug. Every time I say that, somebody's like, but my warlock is the hero of the people and everybody loves him. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's fine. That's fine. Like, there's, <laughs> lots of ways, there's lots of ways. I, we had literally had somebody saying like in the uh, assumption, like I write about in the paladin follower chart uh, sample, which you can read online, that paladins come out of the cavalier tradition. And that's that's not a, that's not an assumption of your campaign. That is true in the real world. That's where paladins come from, right? That is that is an objectively true statement that I was making, and people took exception with that because they are running a paladin that doesn't have a horse or care about that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> that's fine. But the 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 game has its roots in a tradition that I am that I am uh, well familiar with, and those traditions are represented in the rules. So each class has its different chance of attracting different kinds of followers and then even within that chance you can have two different classes that both have a 15 percent chance to attract ambassadors for instance but this class there's only three ambassadors and this one there's eight right mm -hmm. and so you have a much even within a specific so it, it all changes from class to class and so all that stuff is done and so now i'm working on it and and the first layer of what do each of the four strongholds do? Each of them get give you a oh all the oh wait all the follower stuff is done and the what do I get as my class for building a stronghold like the paladins divine right now burning through enemy resistance but only for a limited amount of time um, all that stuff is done and now what each stronghold does is done but each stronghold also needs more optional abilities one of the, because not all of them i mentioned this on, on, online somewhere else not all of the strongholds give you some of them empower your character in combat some of them don't and there are going to be players and dungeon masters that 
don't like that. They're, they want it to be, no matter which stronghold I pick, I get some cool ability in combat. So I got to make sure that works. And I've got ambition. There's stuff I want to do. Like it would be nice if, for instance, right now it's the, like the, to use the paladin, to continue with that example, that, you know, if I found a stronghold and I'm, I've rested at it, then for the next N number of uh, attacks or days, I get, um, I get this improved divine smite. But it would be nice if that were different depending on which kind of paladin you were. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, it would be. I don't know if we're going to do that, but it would be nice. It depends on how much design space I can find there. Mm. That's a big problem with. Um, thank God for fourth edition and ripping that stuff off. But uh, <laughs> it's one of the problems. Like the, it's always a trick. It's always tricky with um, a, a system that is as. There's a, a lot of the stuff that you might sitting down to design a new ability or enhance an ability for a given class. You very quickly realize that the, Wizards of the Coast has already gotten there, and there's mm. a spell that does this, or there's an unearthed arcana. Uh, uh, article that covers this. And you're like, okay, well, do I just do it anyway? Because who, how many people are using that Arnold Arcana stuff? Um, or do I have to try to come up with another way to give these classes new abilities that doesn't step on any of the other ways they can get similar abilities? Mm. So that's the challenge right now. Uh, most of what's left to be written is the how to use this book stuff because there's gotcha. tons and tons of examples and also short sort of showing people how to build i like there's right now there will be but there isn't yet how to build your own follower chart i i know how, i know how it's going to work so it doesn't freak me out that it's not written but people need to be able to the dungeon master needs to be able to easily tweak a follower chart and that i think is pretty straightforward like you know when you look at this stuff it would be very easy for a dm to go uh i don't think this makes sense for this character i know i know which character is going to be building the stronghold but i i want I want her to get this cool ally instead of this one. Fine, just cross it off and write something else on. But actually building your own follower chart is a little bit more elaborate and requires me kind of showing how behind the scenes how, how they got built in the first place mm -hmm. so that a dungeon master could go, oh, because it would be cool to have a, a given character have their own unique follower chart. That would be cool. Yeah. And I know I know one thing that uh, a couple of points that I know you've been making and, and I definitely want to try to get out there, too, is that one, the book was a lot about I love the go juice. The book was about the um, it's about downtime ish yeah. rules versus yeah. how you're going to build your castle wall by wall, window oh, yeah, by yeah. window. Well, yeah, that that happily that that uh, explaining to folks that this is not the book where you you build it's not civ right it's not where you build a castle <laughs> well, people and there are definitely people who want rules like that yeah and you, you saw that in comments and places were like oh but that actually sounds really cool sometimes sometimes when i say it's not it's this not this people watching ha they had never heard of this before until i mentioned that i wasn't doing it and then they're like oh, but that sounds cool i want that mm -hmm. and I, I actually i love that i love that old school kind of that's the kind of the philosophy of my channel is that Every 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 way that D and D has ever been fun, there are still players out there who don't know it, but they would like that. Yeah. There are brand new players who would love to just do dungeon crawling. They just don't know it. They watch Critical Role, and that's not what they do on that show, so it hasn't occurred to them. But like, yeah, definitely like rules for uh, how, how much do doors cost and stuff like that is not going to be in the book. But uh, I forgot what the question was. Poop. Oh yeah, and the second part to that was it was you know, it's it's downtime, and oh, yeah, yeah. the second part yeah. was. Anybody can have a keep or anybody yeah. could have a tower. You don't yeah. have to look at it as each class only gets this one thing. It's about your character could use one of these other things if it felt right in the campaign or your D your dungeon master felt yeah. like it. It's more about what does your character want to do, right? Does yeah. your character want to, um, def you know, uh, is there a war happening in your dungeon master's game? And if so, do you want to participate in it? Well, you build a keep. Actually, you could also probably build a temple because temples are going to give you access to realm magic 
or domain magic, I think it's called, where you can you can cast spells that affect armies or even whole provinces. You know, um, so there is that something you're interested in? Do you want to raise an army? Do you want to fight a war? Do you need, or are you about to get attacked by an army of bugbears? And so you need to, then you build one of these things. Do you want to do spell research? Then you build one of these things. So it's not up to me to say who does that because, and ultimately, like, let's imagine that. You know, it's it's it, it should be self-evident that a fighter would not want to build a tower because a tower is for spell research, but that's not true. What if you're an eldritch knight? Mm -hmm. What if you're a fighter? What if you're a multi-class? What if you're a fighter wizard? Yeah, right? we saw that oh, in possible. chat. People are saying about oh, multi-class won't be yeah. represented. I'm like, no, no, no. Wait, Matt's uh, going to represent well, that. <laughs> there's a, there's a quite elegant yeah. solution that I'm stealing from uh, another game. Where um, actually, I don't remember where I got this, but like. Um, so when the second book comes out, cross your fingers, it presumes the first book is, is moderately well-received. If everybody hates it, I'm not gonna make a second book because why would I do that? But uh, if the first book comes out and people are okay with it, then the second book comes out. And one of the things you're gonna do in Kingdoms and Warfare is you're gonna take your, the map of your world that you may have drawn you know, just freehand pencil and you're gonna put a hex grid over it. That's the one thing I need people to do. I'll take care of everything else if you can put a hex grid over your, <laughs> over your thing because once you put a hex grid on it, now you have provinces. Right now we know where provinces are and where population centers are. And we have like the unit, basic, the basic unit of how all this stuff works. And when you do that, some of the, sometimes there's some forest in this hex and some plains in this hex. And so the rule for all this stuff always is the person who's doing it gets to pick which it is. Right. So if you've got, if you're a fighter cleric, then you, if you, if you, if you pick which of the follower charts you want to roll on, uh, which of the abilities you want to get. Obviously, you pick what kind of stronghold you want to build. It's completely up to you. And you should be able to switch back and forth, by the way. Like, uh, if you're, a, if you're a, um, a paladin rogue, for instance, Liam, Liam O'Brien, then uh, when you build your keep, it, you might build a temple, for instance, because you want to do spell research and, and learn more about the Raven Queen. And you, so that's fine. But then, and so you'll, when it's finished, you'll attract followers. That's when you get to roll on the chart is when your uh, keep is finished. Unless your dungeon master doesn't want to wait, which I often don't. I often assume they've spent the money, I let them roll. So that's an option, mm. right? But then they spend some, it's finished, and they spend some more money later to improve it, and they get to roll again. Well, now you can roll on the rogue follower chart if you want to. You have access to all those charts. And really, there's nothing stopping a player from just going, even though, even though I am a barbarian, the warlock follower chart looks really cool. Can I just roll on that? Mm. Why not? It's up to the dungeon master. Be like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Yeah, whatever. Uh, so yeah, this is all just, uh, my goal is to give the dungeon master, not only finished tools they can just roll with and it'll work, but also empower them to make, uh, decisions about how to, mm -hmm. how to customize this stuff and make it unique to their campaign. Is it, um, obviously fifth edition is a popular role-playing game and probably the most popular at the moment, but yeah. is it okay. system... Is it made for fifth edition, or could I play well, my fourth or third edition game, or even other RPGs with this using this rule set? I would say it's mostly system agnostic, but once you get into modifying class abilities, for instance, then that's not system agnostic. Right. But it depends on like uh, from I think the last two, the three editions, including the fifth one, there are direct analogs for a lot of these abilities, right? Like uh, Paladin's Divine Smite is also in fourth edition, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, if you still play, if you're playing advanced Dungeons and Dragons, I'm not sure what the equivalent is other than like, I, I actually, it's been so long. I don't remember what paladins, what, what special abilities, if any paladins in first edition get special abilities are sort of a, you know, it was more, I, I, it, they're a somewhat modern invention. Um, 
So it depends, but I say 80% of it is going to be like, are there still gold dragons in your game? Then yes, yeah. if you roll a 96 on this chart, you get a gold dragon ally. Yes, and that does that is that's that can easily be true in any system. Yeah, yeah. Things like um, ambassadors, like you you attracted an orc ambassador has come to your court, right, and said, "Hey, I represent this orc tribe." What does that mean? It means you can buy orc units now. Hmm. You didn't used to be able to buy orc units because you're a human, mm -hmm. right? But or, or you were able to buy them; they just cost a lot of money, right. right? Typically, there's there's a there's a chart about like who can recruit what units and at what cost, and what does that have to do with what edition you're in? Nothing. It doesn't even. You can do that in any game. You can do that in you know thirteenth age. Um, if you attract a blacksmith, a blacksmith can make armor and weapons for you, but can also enchant those things if you bring them the right goop. And uh, and you have a wizard. You have, you have to have you have to have access to it. Can be another player character, whatever. If you have access to a wizard or any kind of like arcane spellcaster, then they can make weapons for you. What does that have to do with what edition you're in? Nothing. Yeah, right. yeah. It, it feels like a good fit with the West Marches style game too, where you're building the town up, where you're starting as yep. you go on, you coming back. Well, yeah, again, it does. Like if you're if you're playing a game set in a big city, it's going to be somewhat problematic because where all where are all these guys? But actually, I, uh, uh, there's no like frontier. Like, would a stone giant show up in the middle of the city and say, "Hey, I like what you're doing. I want to help out." Um, maybe, but yeah, there's definitely a set of assumptions that you're dealing with, uh, somewhere around here is the forest primeval, right? In which there are beasties that like, you know, what does it mean to be, to have like an orc ambassador show up or an ambassador of the orc tribes? That means there has to be one of those nearby. And mm. again, if you're in a giant big city and your entire campaign is urban, then th that would be an interesting challenge for the dungeon master. It'd be kind of fun, right? Because that means that somewhere in the city are orcs there's a, obviously a military orc presence in the city because this dude just showed up that now allows you to buy orc units for an army inside a city. So I think that the utility function of the game is somewhat different if you're in a giant urban game, for instance, or if you're in a, on a if you're just purely on a boat going from uh, island to island, that's going to be different and weird. But it does assume a kind of um, old, old school chaos versus law, kind of civilization versus wilderness west marches uh melee that's a that's a good point to segue to because you did finally meet your last yeah. um really only like yeah. yeah your goal the 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 one that you had put out to to try to be the uh the top rpg book released on kickstarter which you yeah. blow, have blown past and it's the pirate ship so tell us all about yeah. the pirate ship How, how's that going well uh so it's a, a pirate ship is a type of keep and i'm just going to tell you how it works these are the rules basically so if you're watching this and you're like that sounds stupid then I'm glad we talked about it because again, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to sell you a book and you open it up and go, "I hate this." Um, but a pirate ship lets you. So a keep is one of the four uh, basic strongholds, and when you finish your keep, you automatically attract units, meaning military units like uh, you know, um, veteran light infantry, right, uh, or elite heavy cavalry. And those terms, by the way, all all mean different things. Those are all mechanical terms that have an impact on the stats of your units. And the rules in the book, the basic rules, there'll be more advanced rules later, but the basic rules for warfare are going to be in here. And I've already, we've already play tested those a little. We'll be play testing them a lot more now. But uh, so if you build a keep, you automatically get some units. Now, anybody can buy units. They just cost more. And they, the upkeep, the uh, season by season upkeep is more expensive if you don't have a keep. So keep just makes it cheaper. Uh, and a pirate ship is a type of keep, so it does the same thing. So you can easily imagine that the the guys on your galleon are your units, right? And they've got, which is kind of how we would expect a pirate ship to work, right? They've got weapons and armor and all that stuff, and they can they can you can sail your ship around. This is during downtime again, so the dungeon master would say, 
Lucian, what do you want to do with your pirate ship? And you're like, I want to send it to this town here on the coast. I want to raid that town. Great. No problem. We're going to go on an adventure, a regular everyday adventure. We're going to go play against a cult of reptile god or whatever. Red Hand of Doom. And oh, when, when we get back, when we get back, I will tell you what happened with your pirate ship, right? Gotcha. And there's a, and you get to make a die roll, and it's about what happens when my pirate. So it's a, it, it, it has units. It's basically a mobile keep, and unlike so it's a, and it's a variation of the rules for a barbarian camp because a barbarian camp is kind of the the um, uh, the maybe not quintessential, but the first one I wrote, uh, mobile stronghold, right? So it moves around, but a barbarian camp gets slower. It, it moves fewer provinces uh, per season. The larger it is, right? While well, the galleon, the pirate ship's the other way around. It goes faster. Uh, the more, the bigger, the, the bigger, the more money you've spent on your ship, the faster it goes because the greater surface area of the sails. And when you, so it's mobile, it can move around unlike a normal keep. And when you send it to a, it generates also, it generates revenue just all by itself. Like you're going to make a roll every season how much, how much booty have your pirates mm -hmm. looted, right? And it'll be up to the dungeon master to decide how do they get this? Did they raid another ship? Uh, you know, have you made an enemy? Uh, probably. Uh, or did they go and raid a town or something like that? So like establishments generate cash all by themselves. And there are some followers you can attract that generate cash, like farmers just generate money because uh, they raise crops and you then sell. Uh, so a pirate ship like an establishment raises money. It has units on it. It is mobile. And then if you send it to raid a coastal town, then you get to roll and you can basically degrade the development level of that town it goes from being it goes from being one level of, of prosperity or or a, a complexity to a lower one it's not automatic there is a role and there are obviously narrative repercussions to these things like you just really upset somebody by the way yeah and that person's going to be angry at you and that's kind of the political layer that you are tacitly putting on top of your game when you get these rules because the whole idea of building a stronghold is um, you're attracting followers because people in the local area approve of you and the things you've done and they've heard of you. You're now, the, the way you got that money, how did you afford this keep? You you did something crazy. You saved somebody. You mm. looted something. You cleared out a dungeon. You got a bunch of cash, but that thing you did made you famous. In the, lo in the local area, people are like, these guys are cool. We like them. Or they're no or notorious. It doesn't necessarily have to be. You can be an evil character and use these rules. By the way, there is all these charts for chaotic evil followers, lawful evil followers. You can get a bone devil and stuff like that as a as a special ally. But you're notorious, and people in the local area, somebody in the local area approves of what you've done and wants to come uh, support you. Either a follower, and you can tell them what to do, or a special ally, and you can't really tell them what to do, but they are they are they want to help. Uh, the flip side of that is there are people who are angry at you. Yeah. <laughs> there are, you have, you, you, your actions have disturbed the steady state world. This is something we talked about in the politics video. Is you, you, not even you building a stronghold per se. That's more of a symbol. But you doing the things you did that got you the cash that afforded you the ability to buy the stronghold changed the steady state world and becomes an inciting incident. And as a result, you're going to upset somebody. And that's a great way to narratively generate new bad guys. You know, who in this local area a warlord uh somebody you know, like an orc tribal leader or the, the the duke or the count doesn't like the idea that you are taking over this place maybe they wanted this maybe they didn't even know that ruined castle was there that you are uh that you are renovating and they consider it theirs they consider it part of their uh domain and so that's you know this is uh, you know strongholds and followers and then later on kingdoms and warfare and you put those two things together and now you've got a politically sophisticated campaign so that <laughs> 
<laughs> you want us to talk a little so you can take <laughs> no, no, no. I, I love doing this stuff. Yeah, no, we love listening. That's why we're just oh, great. Quiet. Uh, no, the, uh, the, you kind of already talked about this, but the, the politics of it, um, someone from chat here, a grip of the green said, how do you feel about setting up a government along with your fortress? And will yeah, there be I mean, any like guidelines or anything to help set up a government? And you were kind of like, like if you do become this new, this new popular guy in town, uh, yeah. and the count doesn't like this, you could maybe take over his government or something. But well, I mean, if that—that's uh, definitely a, a step that would be ambitious, right? You got to yeah. raise an army and go fight <laughs> that guy, and he probably has his own forces and would like, or, or she have their own forces and would like you not to do that. But there's definitely language in the book for hey you're basically building a small town. Like the, the people, mm -hmm. when you roll in the follower chart, those aren't the only people that show up, right? It takes, it takes a lot of people to build or renovate uh, any kind of stronghold. Right. It takes, it takes, you know, carpenters, it takes stonemasons, it takes people providing food for all these people, right? Traders and carters and ultimately farmers. And those people all have families and they live somewhere and they're eventually gonna wanna move onto your land because it'd be easier to to live here than it is to go home every night or but you know you you're, you're this huge camp arises around your keep and that camp becomes a kind of town and that's your town how do you want to run it mm -hmm. right and so there will be language if i if i remember uh there will be language in the book for like if you watched um I, I, did we live stream this i do not remember but when <laughs> uh nicodemus my friend ej's uh eldritch knight when they decided they were going to take over Broken Spire Keep from Night Below and renovate it, and he was going to make it his. Uh, I made sure that there was a session where you know the people working the land, the people helping him build this place. One of them was a kid, and he stole. He's you know there was a very wealthy stonemason, and the kid stole the stonemason's like I think it was a torque or something. It was really that he had taken off for work. The kid just stole it and got caught. And now, now it's up to, this is the simplest possible drama imaginable, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this kid who's on your land has stolen something. What are you going to do? And it was fun. There was a great series uh, that I strongly recommend all Dungeon Masters watch. I believe it's free online called Ethics in America. It was done by PBS. And it's basically, it's like almost like real world D&D where this moderator has a bunch of guests on and the subject is like, what is the role of a reporter in a war? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, what is how does what is a, a doctor's obligation to a patient, you know, and and but the people he had on his show were like, that's General Westmoreland. That's the dude that was in charge of the war in Vietnam. This is so he's like he's pitching all these hypothetical situations, yeah. much like a dungeon master. Right. And then constantly permuting them and throwing the guests curveballs. And and you watch that show and you're like, this is what a dungeon master does. And that's so when EJ has on his land this very simple crime and he's trying to figure out what do I do with this kid? Mm -hmm. Right. And the kid has parents and the parent he needs the parents as workers to build his castle. And so I'm constantly tweaking just when he thinks he's got it figured out, I have another NPC, another villager complain and get disgruntled about this solution, that solution. And he's like, this is harder than I thought. Right. And that <laughs> that's 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 the juice. That's the goal yeah. of the dungeon master is to put the player into these situations where they believe in what's happening, uh, but there isn't an obvious right answer. And so there will be language and advice for how to do that stuff in the book. Cool. Yeah. And the uh, the Kickstarter really is a uh, it's like a three pronged monster. You got a trident going on of stuff that you're offering, and it's we've already been, a very weird Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah. We've been hearing a ton on um, the the book itself, which is great because I think that's where. And I guess the question will be: Do you think this is where you're getting most of your uh, pledges from is it from the book are you getting most of your pledges from the stream are you getting most of your pledges from the miniatures because it's really a three 
three tier well, thing that anybody can can do um i think most of i think I, we'll see we'll probably do like a survey afterwards uh and who knows how many people will fill it out but i strongly suspect that at least the early i it, it may be changing over time as people in different parts of the internet hear about this thing but certainly the initial success of the kickstarter the first whatever first uh seven hundred thousand dollars um that was just people in the community who just want to support the channel Right, that was people who watched. Like, I think I mentioned this uh, somewhere else. I talked about like, in the twenty or thirty seconds it took me between clicking go live on the Kickstarter and switching to the YouTube page, so the YouTube video was also live at the mm. same time, and people get notifications. In however long it took to do that, we already had three pledges. What? I was, I was looking like, online and somebody on Twitter was saying, I was on his page hitting refresh. I knew that he so, was going to do it that day. <laughs> and we, and that's the thing is we hadn't said, hey, it's going live tomorrow. I had said only three days earlier, I had said, we've submitted the Kickstarter for approval because you have to. And it, they say it usually takes about three days. And so people kind of reverse engineered that it must be going live on Friday morning. Mm -hmm. And we're just sitting there refreshed. Like those people, I think, are the hardcore fans of the channel. And they just wanted a chance to support it and get more content. And they're going to. And so... I don't think I'll tell you. So I would say that I'm just guessing. I would I, I'm not the person to ask. Actually, the community is the people to ask. But I would guess that it's probably split 50-50 between stream and book. And of course, I think a lot of people want both. I think the minis oh, yeah. are um, are. I think there are people that think. I, I don't think we've really given people enough information to make good decisions about the minis. Mm -hmm. We've only got one piece of concept art, which you know, and and in retrospect, that I should have. I thought that I, I naively thought that people. This is so dumb. This is so dumb. I thought, well, we'll show people what the min, what one mini will look like, and they can kind of imagine what the rest of the minis will look like. But that's not a good strategy when you're asking people to spend money. Right? Right. You're asking people to spend money, they don't want to have to guess what the other four minis are going to look like. They want to know. Yeah. So uh, instead of having my friend Anthony, who was going to be finishing the con like finishing like final art, like that that adult ruby dragon, that's the art that's going to be in the book. Uh, it's done. He was working on finishing the art for the ancient sapphire dragon, which is going to be this, you know, this is going to be crazy looking dragon, which I can't wait to see. Uh, I asked him to kind of put that down and just do roughs for all the other four minis so we can get it done ideally before the Kickstarter ends and we can show people this is what these creatures will look like. And, and once we've done that, I think we'll see the miniature backers go up a little bit. And his roughs look amazing. So it's not like it's going to be these crazy like pencil sketches and you have to mm -hmm. kind of turn it sideways or anything like that. I've shown off Anthony's roughs on my live chat before and people are blown away by him. So uh, the roughs for the other four minis should give people a lot more confidence in pledging for the minis, which I completely understand. Every complaint I've heard about this Kickstarter, I, I look at it and go, yeah, no, that, that, that you're right. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Uh, and then also we should have, so we've got, um, this is the beginning, Saturday is the beginning of week three. So we have two more weeks, mm -hmm. the rest of this week and then one more week. And we should have soon um, a finished sculpt, a finished 3D model of the adult ruby dragon we can show people and that will again build confidence in the minis and then in hopefully only a couple of days after that maybe a week but we still have a week after that um we'll have the 3d prototype we'll have a print we'll have a actual physical model i can show off and hold in my hand nice. and so between getting more concepts and between showing off the sculpt and then ideally the 3d prototype if we can get all that done in the next two weeks then i think people will be a lot more confident about the minis it's kind of amazing that people were in retrospect it's kind of amazing as many people as have have backed the minis when all we did was shown off like i should have had anthony do five roughs 
yeah. instead of one finished piece, right? Mm-hmm. But I thought people seeing one finished dragon, people would be like, ooh, and they did say that, but then they immediately said, where are the other four? <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's, uh, I, in fact, we structured the Kickstarter kind of, we assumed there would be a lot of people because because of the robustness of the board game ecology on Kickstarter, we assumed there'd be a lot of people who would show up just because these minis are unique. They're unique mm. to the Kickstarter and they're done by an artist that doesn't do minis and they look different than normal Dungeons and Dragons art. Mm-hmm. He's got his, quite, quite his own style, and I, which I think is excellent. It's the reason I, I, I asked him to, to come on board. And we assumed people would be like, I don't, I don't play D&D, but I want those minis. So right. You look at the if you look at the pledge levels, the minis start off being just all by themselves, and then they don't get rolled into everything else until much later. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, that was um, I think that hasn't happened yet. Uh, I don't think we've gotten any any attract. No, I don't think anybody outside the the D and D Matt Goldblum ecology is really pledging right now. Uh, as far as just they just want minis, but they might if we can show off more and better examples of what the dragons can look like. Cool. Um, another good question from chat, uh, and you were kind of talking about this, like, uh, is it Warfare and Kingdoms, Kingdoms and Warfare? Is that, do you Kingdoms have another both, book, but... another supplement, another yeah. Kickstarter kind of in the works? Yeah, in fact, I think if you want to get a, um, it's always tricky, you know, um, it's like this, but going to be different. And people look at this and they don't know how it's going to be different. They go, ah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going to be probably like my version of a book that you can, I think you can get the DMs Guild called um, Fields of Blood, The Book of War, which is a book I did for a third edition with a a company called Eden Studios. And I was not the only writer on it, but I was the lead designer on it. And it's very third edition-y. It's super crunchy. It's it's not, uh, it's it's very kind of got low level mechanics running around inside it. But so I've already done a book like that. And so I have my own philosophy about how that stuff should work. And I, every edition I update that stuff to make it more in tune you know, I was part of the play test. I think a lot of people were. There's millions of people. They were part of the play test for a fifth edition. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's funny because a lot of the stuff they mentioned in the play test, a lot of the why are we doing it this way isn't in the, print, the printed books. So if you weren't in that play test, you don't know why the game works the way it does. But if you were, then you know a lot about the philosophy behind, um, behind fifth edition and about the role of, you know, what are random charts for? There are a lot more in in, uh, there are a lot more random charts in fifth edition than there were in fourth or third. And so, and, and that notion of using natural language, which is, goes back to like second edition, first, first and second edition, using natural language to describe things on purpose because you want the dungeon master to have to make a ruling. There are all these places in fifth edition that I now feel, I feel confident. I know why it was written that way. I know mm-hmm. it's written this way on purpose so that I have to decide what that means, right? right? Because the, the logic of let's make sure and, and Mike Merles is a big proponent of this, going back to his work on fourth edition. Uh, that logic of let's make sure that we have explained everything as in as robust a way as possible succeeds in making it so that um, anybody can run this game, but it fails at making good dungeon masters. Mm-hmm. Right, because the dungeon master has to make rulings. Like the dungeon master has to be able to on the fly kind of learn the virtues of being consistent in their rulings. Right, because the players need that. They need to know they can trust the DM to be consistent because that is part of being fair. Mm -hmm. And fifth edition is all about using natural language and kind of making sure that so that's you know, if you look at if you look at uh Fields of Blood, the book of war, it's all about that, like let's make sure everything is spelled out and there's rules for everything down to the nitty-gritty details. But fifth edition is a lot more about just empowering the DM to understand things, understand things and be able to kind of make decisions and say, even though you gave me this option, I kind of know how it works, I can change it and make it 
And so that's what Strongholds and Followers is all about. It has a lot of language in there for that. And Kingdoms and Warfare is going to do the same thing. It's all going to be about um, domain or realm management and about fighting, you know, how to, how to run your whatever it is, your, your county or duchy or barony, and then how to fight big wars, how to fight big battles. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And with the uh, with the stream, um, which is actually I was uh, I was number five hundred four of your of your Kickstarter. So and I, and I love the book. I'll probably use the book, but I'm super excited about the stream. Oh wow! Yeah, I me know, too. I know a lot of people are saying you know want to compare you guys to Critical Role, and That's I love that show too. But it's not really the same because to me, your show, which you can see on your channel even earlier that you even yeah. already had done. Yeah, we already streamed. Yeah more like a real game that I would see at yep. my table than Critical Role would ever be at my table, right? It is both our blessing and our curse. Right, is, right. Is that, uh, the Critical Role has somewhere north of 50,000 people yeah, giving them yeah. five bucks a month to watch them play D&D. &D. Yeah. Uh, and, and the reason they do that is because they are, this. it's lightning in a bottle. And I think it's always, it's always interesting to me to watch other people try to replicate that success because they can't do it can't be done i don't think i think it is a, a unique intersection of these people who are all professional actors so and they're also a lot of them have um formal training in improv mm. and they didn't know that many of them had not played DD. this is their first game and they didn't know how how much of their own background would be relevant in this in this new hobby of theirs and they're all friends outside the show and they were all friends outside the show for years before it started i've seen other shows kind of try to cast their live show, like literally yeah. put out casting calls and get actors and stuff, especially some of the stuff that's produced in LA. And it's like, guys, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and they genuinely love the game. And so that is like, no one, no one can compete with that. And if held to that standard, anyone else, including us are going to fail. But the thing, I, I don't even think that our major, I was actually talking to Matt Mercer about this, uh, uh, this week, this last week at lunch. And he was like, the thing that separates your brand from his mine if I'm Matt Mercer telling the story, is that he goes, you give everything away and I keep everything behind the screen, right? He goes, where you are constantly showing everyone, here are all my notes, here's everything I did because you want them to run the game. And that is the value added to your stream. It's not that you're normal people. There are lots of normal people you can watch online mm -hmm. playing D&D. It's that um, I've been doing this for 30 years and I've developed a lot of techniques and tricks and I want you to have them. And if you can come sit behind the screen with me, and see all this stuff, you will, I said that when I first, first started the YouTube channel and it was taking off, quote unquote, and it was doing well, I was like, I gotta stream. I gotta show people because they are building this version of Matt Colville in their head, who is this demigod and just, and his, his game must be amazing. I'm like, no, it's not really, it's just like everybody else's. Just a game, uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's just like everybody else's. I'm not that, I'm not that guy. I'm not who you think. I'm just a regular schmuck like the rest of you. And I get, I, I've been doing this since 1986, 87, and I still get incredibly nervous when I start. And I hem and haw. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's just like anybody else's game. And so that's not, for a lot of people, not going to be that entertaining to watch. But for some people, it's going to be re super revealing and empowering and it's going to make them feel like they can do it I, every time we stream i have people who have in the chat have gone oh hell i can do that and i'm yeah. like yes you, you can you can <laughs> um but that being said you know i am a professional storyteller i'm a writer and i think that there is definitely so far one of the things i've learned which i didn't expect by the way was that 
people like the crazy ideas I come up with. People like the fact that Tom was the master of locusts in my game. He was a monk and there are unique monk titles in my game that I made up, by the way, in that moment when I wanted to make an encounter with a bunch of monks more interesting. I was like, you know what? One of these guys is I'll make him the master of locusts. I didn't know what it meant. Uh, but I'm making that, that kind of like on the fly improv world building that I do, I definitely have discovered that there is a, it may be very small, but there is an audience for that. There are people that are like, Matt's ideas are cool. And so if you want those ideas, this is the stream where they are featured. Yeah. What are you most excited about from this Kickstarter? Like, are you ex the book or the stream? Like what's, or what's giving you anxiety? Like what, what's on your mind when you're dealing with this? Um, well, definitely the overwhelming sense that I have is one of concern that I deliver the things we promised. Yeah. I don't, um, again, people project onto this. They, they see the book and they, they imagine that it's going to be like when we were talking about pirate ships, suddenly and for a lot of people, the book became the pirate adventure book. Right. And I was like, no, it's not, it's not what it is. It's yeah, literally yeah. like ha half a page of text about pirate ships. Uh, so people project onto this and, uh, and they throw, they imagine that the success of this Kickstarter means that I'm now, you know, running around like Kermit the Frog and being like, yay, and I've got just scads of money that I'm sleeping in. But in, in fact, what it makes me do is freak out and worry yeah. and be like, okay, these are all, way, way more people than I imagine are now counting on me to produce a product. And everyone working on it, I'm the one, I'm on the hook. Like Lars, Anna, Jerry, they don't have to do any writing. They don't have to do any design. It's it's Matt Colville. Is, so I've got to get, and they are, they all very badly want to deliver on September, right? Very badly. They don't want to be, but everybody does this. Don't, doesn't every Kickstarter want to be the one that actually delivers on their dates. Yes. Oh, we really want to deliver on our dates, right? We really want to do that. And so that is, that's a lot of work. And uh, so those are the things that worry me. As far as looking forward to stuff, I'll tell you what I'm, what I'm most looking forward to. And this may sound strange, but hopefully folks can relate. I'm looking forward to having my own office. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the, the streaming space mm -hmm. that we have to get anyway is going to be the MCDM Productions office. That was going to happen no matter what. Like as soon as you need office space to stream, we have to build our own studio. As soon as you need that space, that means that's where I'm going to be moving a lot of my work and production into. And I'm really looking forward to having my own space and being able to decorate it with all my own nonsense and <laughs> being able to have people over to the office anytime to play games on the amazing table that we're getting. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like um, freedom and responsibility to me is really attractive. And the subset of that is I'm really looking forward to running D&D &D again. I haven't run D&D. I played. I haven't run D&D since like last August, I think. And oh, wow. that is a long drought for me. Um, that's longer than normal for me. So I'm looking forward to the new campaign a lot. Uh, I'm looking forward to, we have, I have a lot of really cool ideas. And also I'm looking forward to, um, this both makes me nervous, but it's something that has to be done. And I think doing it will be both fun and educational for people. Um, I was originally going to run this game in this book right here, which is Monty Cook's Tolis, The City by the Spire, which is this 700-page tome mm -hmm. all about one city. Wow. And I've run I've run games in Tolis before, and I don't think it's, unless you're Monty Cook, I don't think it's really possible to know that that city that well because it's 700 pages. But um, then I was like, and I, I went so far as considering, because I know the guy that runs his business, uh, my friend Charles Ryan, I even considered just going to them and saying, how much do you want to, for me to own this? Like, I'm just going to buy it from you. It's something you guys printed 10 years ago. And now you, now you guys have a whole other different brand. And so I'm sure it makes some amount of money for you, but it's not a going concern. But then I was like, you know what? I should just like, 
if I went online and talked about this, people would just tell me, you should make your own city. We want to see that. And so that's what I decided to do. I'm going to design and build. Oh, it's going to take the whole campaign. It's not going to be something that's going to mm -hmm. be done before we start. It's something that will only just have begun by the time we start. But it will be a whole big city book that we're going to put together from scratch. And some of that work is going to get done live, probably in a stream, where I'll just say, okay, like, here's what I know about this city. Let's start fleshing it out and show people my thought process. And also then, ideally, what will happen is people will watch the stream and they'll be like, wow, Capital, which is the name of the city. In fact, the reason, I've never mentioned this before, but in the future of my campaign setting, all um, seats of power become capital cities, right? Just like it is here in the real world. But the reason they do that is because of this city and its proper name, right? It becomes kind of the archetype in these cultures for the city from which all power emanates. And so that's why it's called capitals. I like that notion of reverse engineering. Why do the words in our language work the mm. way they do? Uh, and it's uh, going to be a big, huge city. And people will watch the stream ideally some people will watch the stream and go that place is cool and then they'll go watch all the work i did making up and they will imagine in their head based on if i do it right so you know 50 50 on this if i do it, <laughs> if i do it right people watching the stream will just think this is a really well detailed cool city and they'll want to run games mm -hmm. in it and they won't realize until they go back and watch the prep that i've done and the videos i make showing my prep that i'm making all this up as i go right that i'm making up which part of the city the player is going to be in this you know right before that stream that night uh and that it's not going to be matt colville spends three years designing a city supplement and then we play in it it's going to be matt colville spends a couple of weeks working on the the outline for the city and then populates it as the players explore it and that to me is going to be both you know scary uh but also i think fun and will help empower dungeon masters to do their own creation okay and, and that really kind of makes mcdm is now a company and I assume it's kind of your full focus, but you, I assume, cause you've already been doing, it, you've already been putting the videos out still that aren't even related to Kickstarter, like just last night or the night before yeah. you just put out, had nothing to do with Kickstarter. So you're still gonna do Kickstarter stuff, but you're still doing, you know, running the game stuff. Yeah. You're still gonna be doing, writing your book, the third yeah. book that's still going out. So how does uh, Turtle Rock still fit into that with you? How does- I, mean, I still, I, I'm- forward? The, the, I'm just incredibly lucky. Uh, there's no other way to put it. But Turtle Rock doesn't really need any writing right now. They need a little bit. They need a tiny, they need a couple of hours a week, I would say, of writing. And maybe even not like a couple of hours of this week and then nothing for a month at this stage. Um, so right now, there isn't a whole lot for me to do at Turtle Rock. Uh, and I would lo love to get, and even, even when there is, there's no... Like, I think I wrote all of the dialogue in Evolve over the course of about three months. And uh, that was didn't take a long time. It just it was, a, it was a very intense time. So, you know, it's it's up to those guys. But the arrangement we have right now is that um, sort of like on retainer, where it's it's when we when we need you, we know we can count on you. And that makes me happy because that's what I want. I don't ever want those. I love those guys. I would not have gotten here without them. This the my first camera that I bought was with my bonus from Turtle Rock that year, uh, so I I love those guys and writing and video games are close to my heart. So it's like when they need me, I'm gonna get the writing done. And it's possible that there'll be a project in the future that requires a lot of writing, but that could only happen at a point where MCDM is more stable anyway, because it'd be mm -hmm. so at this stage of production, it would have to be like not even this year, like next year. And so it's my hope, like I've got a schedule of writing. Right now I'm ahead. I'm ahead on the schedule for writing. Who knows how long that will obtain. The, running the Kickstarter takes a lot of work. Uh, a lot of work and a lot of time. 
And so, uh, but I'm still trying to get writing done before the Kickstarter, even during the Kickstarter. It is my goal that we can say, okay, here's when the first draft needs to be done. And that means there's this many days and there's this many words per page, which means we need to get this much writing done every day. And I am not somebody that I can't write for eight hours a day. I can write for between two and four hours a day and then my brain starts to melt. So the way I normally do things is I say, okay, that means I need to get this much done every day and then I'll make my deadline. And after I've done that for a couple of days and it becomes obvious this is going to work, then I can sort of relax and I can work on other stuff that day. Right? I can get wake up in the morning, I can spend a couple hours getting my, my word count done and be confident that we're going to meet this deadline. And then I can spend the rest of the day doing stuff like making videos or you know writing fighter, which is something I, that I want to do. But that so that'll happen. But that can't happen until confidence is built in the schedule and the word count. Because mm -hmm. if I'm not meeting, if, if, if waking up in the morning, spending a couple of hours writing isn't getting the job done, then I need to spend more time writing. And that means spending less time doing other stuff. But even then, we'll reach a point where it's obvious we're going to cross that finish line, at least that first finish line of getting the playtest stuff already, uh, which means all the rules done in a, in a readable context. And when it's obvious that we're going to make that deadline, then I can spend the rest of my, any given day, I can spend uh, making videos for people, working on, I'd like to take another stab at recording my own audiobook. Right, it's uh, kind of part and parcel of all this stuff. Is I've got the setup. I have a closet. I've got because I have this whole house to myself. I've got a closet that I soundproofed or sound treated, so I can go in there and record, and it sounds okay. And people, I, I'm I have not yet been happy with the res any of my attempts to do an audiobook, but every time I do it and listen back to it, I'm like ah, I can do better, and so <laughs> I want to go back and give that another stab. So all that stuff is on the table. Hmm. Uh, well, we don't want to take, keep you forever, but um, I've got but one. Do, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> I got. I got to get my writing done today. Yeah, you got writing to do. Um, I've got one more question. That's kind of a silly one, but I liked it um, from chat. MJS October asks, "Will you ever make a synth album D and D soundtrack for us?" <laughs> so yeah, this is something that I've gotten into uh, just in like January is when I started, and it was sort of. Um, and it's modular synthesis. Uh, and uh, music has been a huge part of my life uh, ever since I was a kid. I used to be kind of a semi-professional singer. I was in the, I was in the uh, Orange County um, uh, Pacific. I was in the Pacific Corral for a little while as a kind of a, 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 they paid me, they pay you like, there's a level of singer where they're paying you 50 bucks a week, which is basically nothing, but they pay you that much so that you can then, they want to keep you. They don't mm -hmm. want you to leave. And now you can kind of shop yourself around to other choirs as a professional as a professional singer, even though they're not paying much. So that was where I was in my career at one point when I was in college. And music's always been a big part of my life. And when I was writing the Critical Role comic, I started to get into modular synth. I bought, uh, go look this up online. I bought a Moog. It's technically Moog, but come on. Uh, Moog Mother 32. And Mother 32 is a self-contained synthesizer in a box. And I watched a video of this dude, uh, and he was basically playing Blade Runner music. And I was like, mm -hmm. what is that? How is he doing that? And uh, the guys that invented modular synthesis, um, Don Buchla and Robert Moog, they felt like they had come up with a way for normal people to make music, right? It doesn't really involve keyboard or guitar or any of the stuff that you learned. You, you had lessons that when you were a kid and you hated. And it's just a blast. And I love it. And I've since then spent a ridiculous, stupid amount of money. And that was the problem. I made a promise to myself when I was working on the Critical Role comic was that I wasn't going to monkey with my synthesizer until I was done. 
Mm. I got to finish this, got to knuckle down, finish this comic. <laughs> the, the result of that was since I decided I wasn't going to play with it, I just bought more modules. That was my way of like, of, of, of playing with it without playing with it. So my, <laughs> the number of modules just increased enormously. And now I've actually produced, I actually um, produced something that was close to being a composition. Nice. Uh, it was a song, quote unquote, with like a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I uploaded it and posted it on Twitter. And I'm going to try and replicate it probably tonight if you watch our live stream tonight. Somewhere, sometime between 5 and 7 we go live. I'm probably going to try and replicate that same patch. And uh, I, I have no intention of releasing an, uh, an album. However, I do intend on using this for the stream. I do cool. think that it would be cool, depending on what the players are doing. And it's easy to imagine if they're ever in uh, the world below, which is my extra dimensional version of the Underdark, using this thing to generate all the sounds and music that they hear. I think that would be a lot of fun. And there's a type of patch, a patch is like a, um, a, a way of solving this uh, puzzle that is a modular synthesizer. There is a type of patch called a generative patch or a self-generating patch where you plug it in and you turn it on and it makes music by itself. And you're not, there's no notes on your part. It's just doing it by itself and it's changing and permuting over time like an organic thing and something like that for D&D would be great sounds awesome yeah. uh thank you so much for taking yeah. time out of your day and chatting with us Thanks this was me. a lot of fun you're yeah, had a great time. truly are a, a gifted storyteller because like this is the easiest interview i think i've ever done because <laughs> you're just <laughs> like i'm gonna talk it's gonna be great <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy to be on. It was, it was a blast. You guys asked good questions, by the way. So oh, if cool. it's all, if that's coming from chat, then congratulations, chat. Congrats yeah, good job. We, we stole some from chat because chat's great. So, and thank you all guys for watching um, in our stream today. This is great. Um, this is going to be, I'm saving the, rec uh, the recording and it'll be up on my YouTube channel on Monday. So if people missed it, you can catch it live on Solutions Twitch channel or Monday on my channel. Um, you can find Mr. Matt Colville, just Google him. You'll find a whole bunch of stuff. Kickstarter, YouTube channel. He does great work if you don't know who he is, but I'm sure you do. So You know, forget the Kickstarter. If you're watching this and you're not running D&D for whatever reason, go uh, go to my yes. YouTube channel, Running the Game, because you can do it. It's fun. It, not only is it fun, it's a lot easier than you think. And it's Dungeons & Dragons is the most fun you can have with your brain. So, and I watched somebody online the other day saying, I don't know, I, this wasn't even my side, this is just somewhere on the internet. Somebody's like, I'm really interested in D&D, but I don't know anybody who plays. And it's like, that's not how it works. You make people who play. Yes. You uh, just go to these people and say, <laughs> we're playing D&D. Here's your character sheet and some dice. It's exactly down. what I did. I had, I realized that if I wanted to play this game, I was going to have to Dungeon Master because none of my friends yeah. were as interested. And then I forced them to play. And we've now been playing the same campaign for about four years. And yeah. it's just don't wait, don't wait for joy. people to come to you. You got to yeah. just go to them and say, hey, we're playing D&D. &D. And they're like, what's that? You're like, well, yeah, here's a character sheet and some dice. You'll, find <laughs> You'll figure it out. Yeah. A little bit of improv. You're good. Um, yeah. Thank you again. Uh, with that, we're going to close out the stream, guys. But thank you for watching. And, and I guess I just keep saying thank you. But we'll see you guys next <laughs> Saturday for another episode of the Saturday Morning D&D &D Show. Take care. Thank you. Peace out. Peace out. <laughs> Our intro and outro music is 8-Bit March by Twin Musicom, licensed under Creative Commons. Check out their website at www.twinmusicom.org.